Colossians chapter 1, we're going to do verses 24 through 29. That'll get us through the rest of, of chapter 1. Then next week being Easter, um, we'll, we're, going to, we're going to digress away from Colossians for one week. But man, this actually timed out. God just, God just has perfect timing because He's allowed us to be finishing up on really what to me is a is very much a Palm Sunday kind of of uh, of message. And anybody doesn't know what Palm Sunday is, you know, this is when this is when Jesus it's Sunday before Easter. This is when Jesus would be coming through the city and he's riding on the donkey and. And you've got uh, all the people lining the sides of the streets, and they're waving palm fronds, and and they're crying out, you know, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, and they recognize him as the the Messiah, and just a powerful uh, a powerful thing preparing us. And I, I hope that this week that you will be thinking through and preparing your heart for Easter, because I know it's 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 hard on us as parents and all that we. We get very focused on, you know, Easter baskets and all those kind of things. And I'm not one of those folks that, you know, tries to go, oh, my goodness, people shouldn't be doing an Easter basket and all that stuff. Look, man, I got an Easter basket the whole time I was growing up, and I'm liable to get one this year, just telling you right now. But just don't lose focus of what the true meaning of, of Easter is. Colossians chapter 1, verse 24 through 29. Here's our scripture before we, before we pray. Now I rejoice in my sufferings for you, and I am completing in my flesh what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for his body, that is, the church. I have become its servant. According to God's administration, it was given to me for you to make God's message fully known. The mystery, hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to his saints." God wanted to make known among the Gentiles the glorious wealth of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. We proclaim him, warning and teaching everyone with all wisdom so that we may present everyone mature in Christ. I labor for this, striving with his strength that works powerfully in me. Let's pray over the word. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that although it may have been written a long time ago, God, you are eternal and ageless and time has no boundaries on you. And so your word, God, because it was you, it, Jesus himself was the word made flesh to come and dwell among us. So if you are eternal and timeless, then so is your word. God, it's not about that it got written down a long time ago. It says real today because you are real today, because you are here today. You are here in the yesterday. You are here in the tomorrow. God, because it is no boundary upon you. And so your word is the same way because it is you. And so Father, we thank you. We thank you for your word and what it's going to speak to us today. Father, we pray that our hearts would be open to receive it, that our minds would be prepared to, to digest it. And God, that we would in ourselves be determined that we're going to apply it into who we are and into our lives in following after you as disciples today. We give you all the praise and all the glory. In the name of your Son and our strong Savior, Jesus Christ, and the church together said, Amen. Amen. Today we're, we're picking up on what is really on the surface a confusing passage because 
we would have to ask ourselves, is Paul really indicating that there is something that is lacking in what Jesus has done for the church? Because the very first verse there says, Now I rejoice in my sufferings for you, and I am completing in my flesh what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for his body, that is the church. And a lot of people, instead of trying to figure that out, they'll just go right on past it and go, all right, you know, not sure what that's saying. It looks like it might be saying something a little odd, so I'm just going to go on and move on because I don't know what that means. We need to understand what that means because it's in God's Word, and that way if somebody ever comes to you and says, hey, wait a minute, I read this thing in Colossians where apparently it looks like that Jesus didn't complete the work, and Paul said that he had to fill up and finish what Christ had completed, and you'll be able to go, hey, wait a minute, let's talk about what that really means. At face value, it seems that Paul is stating that something has not been accomplished through what Jesus did on the cross, and that he's going to fulfill this, but we have to go deeper than a surface reading, and we have to grasp two Jewish concepts in order to understand what Paul is saying here. More than ever, I'm going to continue to remind you guys that you have to understand Scripture in cultural context and in historical context. Now, that doesn't mean that it doesn't have application today, but we understand phrases and words differently sometimes today than what they would have in that context. So when Paul says something and he's addressing a current teaching or he's addressing uh, certain religious standards, if we don't know that, then we interpret it to mean something else versus going, wait a minute, I understand the religious culture that he was in, and so when he says this, I can see what he's speaking to instead of trying to take and go, ah, I think that means this today. Okay, I'll continually remind us of that as we go through Scripture because that's often how people get misled about what the Word of God means because they try to take something that was written in a cultural context and then they, they want to turn around and interpret it through today's context instead of understanding it in that cultural context and seeing how it applies to today. You've got you to understand it first and then see how to apply it, not try to figure out today and, and use that to interpret, the, you know, use that as the lens through which we look at Scripture from back then. We'll get it a little backwards. These two Jewish concepts that Paul was addressing here was one is what's called corporate Christology. Now, if you remember, just back a couple of weeks ago, we talked about a Christological hymn. So what is Christology then? What's, what's it talking about? It's talking about Christ. It's talking about Jesus. That's, that's all it is. Nothing, nothing complex here. Thanks for everybody yelling out the answer all at one time. You know, your enthusiasm inspires me this morning. <laughs> corporate Christology. It's actually expressed at the end of the passage when he talks about the church as Christ's body. So corporate is you think about a bunch of different things that are brought together. You know, it's a corporation. It's something corporate. We talk about corporate worship. That's not individual worship. That's when multiple people come together and we say, well, you're having corporate worship. There are multiple people come together to do this as one. Corporate Christology has to do with that what is true of Christ is true of his people because they are his body. So corporate Christology says that what is true about Christ applies to his people then. The second, 
The second concept was about messianic woes. It's about the Messiah, the one who's going to come and deliver. So we're going to, we're going to take a few minutes to talk about the, the messianic woes. There was, a, there was a belief system at the time with the, with the, uh, the, the Jewish religious system that, that time was divided into two ages. There was the present age, and then there was the age that was to come. And they saw those as two very distinct time frames, and that the, the dividing line in those was going to be a time when the people of God would begin to suffer great tribulation that would be understood scripturally, in their minds, as the birth pangs of that new age. So they thought, we're going we're gonna to come along in the present age, and then, boom, there will be this moment in time where the people of God, you can't, can't really say the church because the church was a Christian thing, and Christianity is different than Judaism. The Old Testament is all about Judaism. Christ comes along in order for you to have Christianity, okay? I often hear people mistakenly refer to stuff in the Old Testament as Christianity that's not. That was Judaism, which was leading us to the need for Christ. And then after Christ comes Christianity. That's why it's got Christ in it. So they believe, though, that there was this, you come along all of a sudden, the present age, boom, there's the people of God will go through this great tribulation, and that will usher in the age that is to come. Now, Paul, though, had come to see this differently in light of what he had seen with Jesus coming, Jesus' death, and Jesus' resurrection. Because now what Paul was understanding was that there would be an overlapping of these two ages. The, the present would be overlapped then with the, the, the age that was to come, and therefore there would be some tribulation that would occur. And don't be, anybody misunderstand. I'm not talking about the, the tribulation that you see in Revelations, just in case anybody gets worried about that. Trials and things like that would occur while the present age was still occurring and the age to come was making its way in. Now, I, I know your, your, your mind's going in circles right now, and you're going, I'm not entirely sure maybe exactly what he's talking about. We're going we're gonna to keep working this out. I'm going to share with you out of a commentary that I read this week. Jesus' resurrection had inaugurated the new age. In other words, it brought it in. You think about we just had a presidential inauguration. They, they make a transition from one to another. Okay, Jesus' resurrection had inaugurated the new age, but the old would continue alongside it until Jesus' second coming. The whole of the time span, this being the entirety, the whole, not like the whole that you fall into, but the whole as an entirety. The entirety of the time span between the Lord's resurrection and His return was, then, the period of the turnaround of the eras. Therefore, that whole time frame would be characterized by the messianic woes. Such suffering, indeed, is actually regarded as evidence that the sufferers really are God's new people. We don't want to hear this. We don't want to hear people thinking this way. But, but that suffering was really the evidence that people are really God's new people. That is why Paul can talk of rejoicing in his sufferings as opposed to merely rejoicing in the midst of or despite his sufferings. All right, let's, let's talk about that for a minute. What he's saying is he recognizes that uh, we see throughout Scripture that the Messiah was going to suffer. All right, we're going to look at some scriptures here in a moment to help you see the connection to us with that. But that the Messiah was going to suffer. 
And he says, so those are the messianic woes. Pain, trial, tribulation, all these things he's going to go through. But he says, when we came into Christ, who was the Messiah, then the belief was that if we suffered in the same way that Christ suffered, that was evidence that we were his people. Because if you weren't God's people, why would you be suffering? Because if why would the enemy be coming against you in things and, and causing suffering related to religion if you weren't truly a follower of, of Christ and if you weren't God's people? And that's why he says then Paul recognizes and says, okay, then suffering in this life I recognize as me doing something that Christ did. And so since I am partaking of what Christ is doing, I can even rejoice in the suffering because the suffering helps me see that I am Christ versus just I'm rejoicing in spite of suffering. Now, you're, as much as I hate a lot of times when people say this, but this is not a message and this this content right here is not something you're going to see on your local television station because nobody wants to come out and, and, and try to get people to send in millions of dollars into their ministry saying, hey, suffering is part of the lot that falls to followers of Christ. And Paul could rejoice in suffering, not just despite suffering or not even, you know, in some sense of merely rejoicing in the midst of it because I'm supposed to. He could actually rejoice in the suffering because he said, this is showing me that I have taken up Christ's work. That's tough. It's tough. Paul saw that believers had joined into the life of Christ, not that they were just imitating the life of Christ. So once you see this, we're not there in Colossians yet, but we're going to jump there anyway. Colossians 3, 3 and 4, he says, For you have died, and your life is hidden with the Messiah in God. You have died, and your life is Christ. That's why he said, Paul saw believers joined into the life of Christ. Not just, well, Christ gave you life. Christ is our life. That is powerful. It's not just that he remained, but he became our life. We just sang a song. He became sin. Who knew no sin that we might become his righteousness. It's not just that, that he you know, put his righteousness on us, but we became his righteousness because we die. We die, and the life that we have now is hidden with the Messiah, which is Christ, in God. And verse 4 said, when the Messiah, who is your life, is revealed, when he comes again. Because remember, he's, they've already seen Christ. Christ has already been there, and now Paul is riding to this church. So when he's saying revealed, he's not saying, well, we've never seen him before. He's talking about when he is revealed again, when he comes back, when the Messiah who is your life is revealed, then you also will be revealed with him in glory. Paul knows that the church and all individual followers of Jesus are now an extension of Jesus here on earth. And as a result... We share 
in both his suffering and in his glory. Romans 8, verses 16 and 17, the Spirit himself testifies together with our spirit that we are God's children. And if children also heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ, seeing that we suffer with him so that we may also be glorified with him. Then this is, this is tough stuff leading up to the idea of Easter. When he's going through all of the suffering, he's being beaten He's being mocked. He's being scourged. You know, they blindfold him. Hey, tell us which one of us it is that struck you and suffered. He says, we're children and heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ, seeing that we suffer with him so that we may also be glorified with him. Our men just saw this recently in Bible study, Philippians 3.10. My goal... Paul said, is to know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being conformed to his death. Paul also saw that he would suffer in order to, to use a phrase from today, to take the heat, if you will, away from the church itself. That sometimes the suffering of a few would actually help bring relief to the many. I want you to see this in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 3 through 7. Praise the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and the God of all comfort. He comforts us in all our affliction so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any kind of affliction through the comfort we ourselves receive from God. I'm going to stop there for a minute because it makes me want to preach this stuff right here. Man, this is, this is powerful stuff. Listen, he says, Praise the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and the God of what comfort? All comfort. My goodness. The God of all comfort. And then what does he follow that up with? He says, God comforts us in all our affliction for a purpose. He does so for a purpose. It's not just so that we alone will be comforted. That's part of it. That's part of it. But he says, he comforts us in all our affliction so that we can turn around. Listen to that. Oh my goodness, this is good. There is an element that God plays in comforting those who are in affliction, but there is an element that we as followers of Christ are supposed to also play in comforting those who are in affliction. And the problem is when only one half of that equation works. The problem is if we are only relying on God to be the one to comfort those who are in affliction instead of recognizing our part. Because if we're not careful, we become like a sponge. We just want to soak it up, but we don't want to give it out. We don't want to be a conduit sometimes. We just want to be a sponge. The conduit, when water flows through it, it gets wet. But it's just passing it through onto something else. But the sponge just tries to soak it up for itself. He said, God comforts us in all our afflictions so that we may be able to comfort those who are in what kind of affliction? Any kind of affliction. I'm a, you're going to have to talk with me today. You're going to have to. He comforts us in what? What's that word? All right, I'm going to give you all another chance. He comforts us in what? 
all our affliction so that who? We, we may be able to comfort those who are in what? Any, Any kind of affliction. In all our affliction, He will comfort us so that we, not He, so that the church can turn around and be able to comfort those who are in any kind of affliction. But how are we going to do it? Through the comfort that He gave us. So you can't hang on to the comfort that He gave you. He says it's got to happen through the comfort that we ourselves receive from God that we're going to turn around. It's kind of like if somebody gives you a bunch of groceries and then you see somebody else who's hungry. If you just hang on to all the groceries, you can't help feed them. But if you are willing to take from what has been given to you and pass it along to someone else, my goodness, then he will comfort you in all your affliction. See, our fear is... That if, if when God begins to comfort us in our affliction, if I turn around and pour out of myself into somebody else, I'm going to be doing without. What did he say that he will comfort us in? All our affliction. So if you begin to see the levels of your comfort in affliction coming down, he's going to keep pouring in because he's going to comfort you in all your affliction so that you can turn around and can comfort people who are in any kind of affliction through the comfort we ourselves receive from God. So if you are turning around and pouring out that comfort to other people who are in affliction, he's going to keep pouring into you to comfort your affliction so that you will comfort other people because if not, then you'd just eventually expend all of that and you couldn't comfort anybody anymore. Now, this isn't just about being able to say, well, I understand because I've been through what you've been through. Hey, look, the reality is most of us will not go through many of the things that other people go through. But he didn't say, I'm going to comfort you in your affliction that's just like somebody else's affliction, and those are the only people that you can comfort. He says, I'm going to comfort you in all of your affliction so that you can comfort other people in any kind of affliction. I'm gonna, I tell you what, this isn't even where I wanted to stay focused. This is going to make me want to preach this here in a minute. How powerful is that? In what you are going through, I will comfort you. Why? Because the comfort is not about being specific to a situation. It's about being specific to a source. When it comes from the source, it will comfort all affliction. So although your affliction may be different than my affliction, the source of that comfort, that's why it doesn't need to be your comfort. Because when you try to comfort people, you will try to comfort them out of what you know and what you've gone through. But if you are comforting them through what Jesus has given to you, then it will resolve any kind of affliction. Because it's not about you, and it's not about what you have experienced. Verse 5 says, For as the sufferings of Christ overflow to us. See, I had to get you through all that comfort thing before I dropped this verse on you. For as the sufferings of Christ overflow to us, so through Christ our comfort also overflows. Listen to that. He didn't just say, oh, you get comfort, you get out. He says the sufferings of Christ, they overflow the cup of Christ, and they flow on to us. But in the same way that his sufferings overflow to us, his comfort overflows to us. So through Christ, our comfort also overflows. If we are afflicted, man, now this is a thought. 
If we are afflicted, it is for your comfort and salvation. If we are comforted, it is for your comfort. Mm. Which is experienced in your endurance of the same sufferings that we suffer. He says, look, if we get afflicted, it's because that, that you've got to see that process. We're afflicted. God comforts us. We're able to comfort you. So if we're afflicted, it's so that God can comfort us and so that you will be comforted and so that your salvation will come about. And then if we're comforted, it's for your comfort. And your comfort is going to happen when you go through affliction. Because he said, out of the affliction is where the comfort comes from. When you get afflicted, God pours out the comfort. There's no reason to turn around and give somebody that's a millionaire and they got plenty of money to cover all their bills. There's no reason to give them a $100 bill. The person that needs the $100 bill is the person that's out here struggling and wrestling and trying to do, and they don't have the $100 bill. It's out of their need that the provision will come. And he says here, if we're afflicted, it is so that provision will happen to us so that provision will happen to you. And if we're comforted, you get comforted because we're not going to hold on to it. And, but the only way that you're going to experience this comfort is if you go through the sufferings that come about because of Christ. And out of that, then he's going to turn around and he is going to comfort you. So what Paul was, was not, he, he was not saying, well, well, Christ has not accomplished something and I've got to do that. He says, I identify that my life is in Christ. I died and now it's Christ that lives in me. And my life is hidden with him. And so I have to experience the things then that, that Christ would have experienced, which would include that he suffered. And so I'm going to experience sufferings so that the continuation of his life in me is completed. Verse 25. Oh, I, I didn't, I didn't, sorry, I didn't finish verse 7. Man, I'm sorry. Verse 7. And our hope for you is firm because we know that as you share in the sufferings, so you will share in the comfort. I, I got you there talking. I just didn't get the, I just didn't read the verse. I got so excited about it, I didn't read the verse to you. Colossians 1, verse 25, it says, I have become... It's servant, according to God's administration, it was given for you to make God's message fully known. Paul recognized what his calling was. His calling was to be the servant of the church. And his distinct role was to help others recognize and experience the full power of the Word of God. Now, what is the full power of God's message that we see here? I want, I want to tell you what it is. The full power of God's message is the gospel. Just very simply, it's the gospel. It wouldn't be all that great for us just to find out, not that it's not good, but it wouldn't be all that great and powerful if what we just found out was God exists and God created the world and God created all these people and all this and and. and and he created a perfect world that was designed for people to live in harmony with, with both each other and with nature and all of this stuff, but then sin, and, and then we'd go through all of that, and then that was it. That's not the message of the gospel. That's just the history of the world. But the message of the gospel comes down then to that God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, 
that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. And he didn't come to condemn the world, but that through him the world might be saved. So the, 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 the power of, the full power of the message of God is to tell people that there is an answer to what is wrong. There has been a solution provided to the problem. There is an answer key to this test. And it's found in God's word that became alive in Jesus Christ that died on a cross that was buried and three days later rose again with the keys of death, hell, and the grave, ascended to the right hand of the Father where he sits to ever make intercession on our behalf. The message and the power of of God's message is to be able to tell people you can be free. Paul said, I become the servant according to God's administration. It was given to me for you to make God's message fully known. The gospel is powerful. It destroys the works of darkness. It brings the spiritually dead back to life and it heals the broken. I deserved a better amen. Thank you though, Rudy. (laughs) Verses 26 and 27. It says, The mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to his saints. God wanted to make known among the Gentiles the glorious wealth of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. The Jewish religious system had long anticipated a Messiah coming. Actually, they still anticipate a Messiah coming because they don't recognize that he came in the form of of Jesus Christ. There were scriptural allusions to what this would look like. There were prophetic statements concerning the coming Messiah all throughout the Old Testament. But but yet they they couldn't truly see and it didn't it didn't necessarily, you know, give them exactly what it was going to be, but it gave plenty enough to be able to recognize Jesus as the Messiah. But at some level, it was still a secret that was known about but not fully revealed. It's not a mystery in the sense of something that cannot be solved. It's something. It's like having a curtain over something and then revealing it. I, uh, every now and then I watch... Um, I, I don't remember the name of the show because I, I don't ever pay attention to names on them, but it, Chip and, and uh, whatever her name is, Gaines, that do a show on HGTV where they... That Christian folks and and it's a, a man and his wife and they go in and uh, and they redo homes and stuff for people and uh, Joanna Chip and Joanna Gaines and it, I always I always like because especially when they uh, when they first did it they used to they would they would have people come up and they might have a uh, uh, a, a big two part sign blocking the front of the house before they would and they were going to do the great reveal and they would tell them are you ready to see your new home. But it's an old house. It's been redone. And then they'd pull it apart so that you could see and they'd back the camera up to where it, it was on scale so that the picture you were looking at was the same size as what then appearance-wise is what the house was going to look like when they pulled it apart and the house was sitting way back from it. And so, man, you'd see this old-looking thing and then they'd pull it apart and they would do the great reveal. And you're like, man, I need somebody to come do that to my house. Right? You're like, that is awesome. And these people, some of them start crying, you know. And, and it's always funny to me how that people say, I'm speechless. Well, not exactly, or else you couldn't have said I'm speechless. But, 
you know, I'm speechless. I don't know what to say. <laughs> but people are sitting because they see the great reveal. It's a mystery up until that point. They have an idea. They've talked about the plans. They've looked at maybe some of the colors, but they haven't truly seen it until it gets revealed. And Paul said, this mystery that's been hidden for ages and generations, you had all the signs, you've seen the plan talked about, you've seen a lot of the stuff, but you haven't quite seen it, but I'm telling you it has been revealed now because God wanted to reveal it. He never wanted it to remain a secret. He just had a plan and a timing because when it was the right time, then it was revealed through Jesus Christ. Paul makes something very clear. The mystery has now been revealed. The Messiah is Jesus. I like, though, there's a, a phrase that, two phrases actually that used to, to describe Christ in this role. You see, when, when, when he says here in this verse 27, when he says God wanted to make known among the Gentiles, God had his originally chosen people, the, the, the Jewish people. But the Bible says in John 3, 16, that God so loved the world. Yes, he had a chosen people that he wanted to come to, but his plan always was that he wanted to expose the Messiah to the whole world. He wanted to reveal that to the entire world. For God so loved the world. So he says, yes, it's been hidden for a time, but then when the, when the Gentiles reached a point where that it was within God's timing to reveal it to the whole world, he made this mystery known. But then he uses these two phrases that I, I love here. The glorious wealth of this mystery and the hope of glory. The revelation of Jesus being the Messiah is not small. It's not weak. It's not a run-of-the-mill statement. Rather, it is rich, it is glorious, and it's the definition of hope. Jesus Christ, the hope of glory. Verses 28 and 29. He said, We proclaim Him, warning and teaching everyone with all wisdom, so that we may present everyone mature in Christ. I labor for this, striving with His strength, that works powerfully in me. Here's what we need to, to get out of this. Sorry, I didn't get you verse 29. I got so excited reading it. I didn't flip over to 29 for you. Here's what he's saying when he says, we proclaim him. And then in verse 29, when he says, I labor. He's recognized that because God is at work, Paul got to work. I think sometimes... It's almost like that the body of Christ believes because God is at work, we get to be at rest. Now, I'm not saying the Bible doesn't talk about comfort and being able to rest in Him and all of this, but because God is at work, then we get to work. We get to work doing what God's plan is for us, both in a corporate mentality and in an individual mentality. There are things that we, as people who are part of the body of Christ, from a body standpoint, that we're supposed to be about doing. But then there are things that God specifically has for your life. I'm not the one to tell you what that is. Your neighbor's not the one to tell you what that is. 
No TV guy is the one to be telling you what that is. You don't have to write into them. You don't have to send $50 to get a prayer cloth that when you lay it on your head and pray that it's going to tell you what God's plan for your life is. That's not what it is. God has a plan for your life, and he wants to reveal it, and he wants to use you in doing those things. And I can tell you that you will not find that plan tomorrow, and then that'll be it for the rest of your life. God's plan is progressive in our lives. He will, he will use you in things that you're prepared and you're equipped to do now. He'll equip you to do things that he wants you to do later. That's exciting to me because if, you know, it's kind of like our jobs at times. Sometimes if you, if you work in a factory, and I've been, that's, you know, where I've spent my whole adult life is, is working in plants and or running plants and Man, I tell you what, there's been times where I've looked and said, I could not do what some of my folks do. Stand there and do the same thing every day, all day long, running that same machine, making those same parts, doing that same. I mean, you almost want something to break down. I mean, you want something to happen to put some kind of difference in because it's just monotonous doing the same thing. Man, I am so glad that God's plan for our individual lives is not, well, here it is, and now for the next 75 years, this is what your life's going to look like. <laughs> not that it wouldn't be good, but I mean, eating steak all the time is great, but I mean, after a while, you're like, man, I need something. I need, you know, I need a potato with it. I need a, you know, some broccoli or something. I mean, this is great, but I need some kind of diversity. I'm thankful that God's plan for our lives, it, it, it progresses over time where that he begins to mature us, and as we mature, then he uses us for additional and different things in our lives. It's, a, it's not a job, it's an adventure. Amen. <laughs> Shout out to the army. Yeah. It's not a job, it's an adventure. They don't say that. I know, they don't say that anymore. <laughs> We can take it then. We can, we can pull it over into the church world. <laughs> but Paul had two distinct areas of work. I want to spend a little time on these because this is, this, is, this is meaty stuff. Two areas of Paul's work in the church, he said, was warning, and I would, in some, some translations, use it as admonishing. And the second one was teaching with all wisdom. What does it mean... When he said, part of my role is warning. He said, we proclaim him warning and teaching. Warning is to warn or counsel in terms of someone's behavior. And I'm going to tell you that it's the most resisted form of ministry today. Amen. It's the most resisted form of ministry today. Now, I'll tell you why. I mean, let's, let's, let's talk about why before we talk about the rest of it. The why is because people are hateful. I, I'm sorry, I didn't even set you up well for that one. I just, I just come with a right cross and drop the mic and go on. People's attitude of correction and warning and counsel is hateful. It's not Christ-like. It doesn't show humility. It doesn't show a brokenness. It doesn't show a love for someone. The Bible talks about it says, speak the truth in love. And so there's this warning and counsel that happens just because I want to be able to tell you about what you're doing wrong in your life versus looking and saying, I am brokenhearted and I'm driven to prayer because of my love for you and my concern about what it is that you're doing in your life that is so evidently wrong and damaging, even if you don't recognize it. There are people that that you know you can you can build a house in the wrong place 
You can build a house in an area where there's, there's too much water in the ground. You know, all different kinds of stuff. And you for a long time will not see that there is damage that is occurring. And so people, oh, no, we got a great house. Look at our house. It's sitting here. And then you get 10, 15, 20 years down the road, and the, the erosion effect that's been going on all of a sudden causes a catastrophe. Two days before it happened, one minute before it happened, you maybe didn't know anything was about to happen, but it had been occurring the whole time. And someone with proper knowledge of what was going on could have warned you and counseled you. You don't need to go and build in that place because there's a problem that eventually is going to erode the foundation of what you're building on. There is, but there is an attitude. If somebody comes up and says, man, are you just rank stupid? That you fix and build over on that lot? You must be ignorant. You must be an absolute moron. Now, that don't work, you know. That, that, that kind of that doesn't work that way. But if somebody comes along and says, hey, man, I know how hard that you have worked for your money, and I know what a struggle's been, and I know how much you want to do this, but, but hey, let me tell you what I know about this piece of land right here. This, this is a bad spot because, you know, I looked at this several, several years ago, and I contemplated building on that type of thing myself. Let me tell you what that's going to cause. And here's some information. Let me show you. Here's a study that was done on it that shows exactly what that will do. Because, man, I don't, want you to, I don't want you to waste your money. I don't want you to waste your time. I don't want you to be 10 years in a row. You know, you go, man, man, I appreciate that. Thank you for it. Can I have a copy of that? Yeah. Yeah, that's what I brought it over here for. Because, man, I did not want you to waste your life on, on this. When we approach someone and we are able to warn and counsel in terms of behavior from an attitude that is Christ-like, then it changes people. And, and while it may not be readily received in the moment, it is planted without so much anger, frustration, and rebellion. And then it will begin to bear fruit over time. Now, here's the opposite side of that. The reason that people will not receive warning or counsel in terms of their behavior is because they're proud. You're not going to correct me. You're not going to tell me. Ain't none of your business. This is my life. Now, let's hold on for just a blessed moment. <laughs> if we're all connected in the body of Christ, and, 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 and something is sitting here poking the foot, and I'm a hand, and the whole body hurts, because something's poking a foot. Ask my son right now. That shoulder, it, it, it hurts. It makes the rest of you. I had a heel problem here about two weeks ago. And man, it, it made my toe start hurting because I was walking weird, trying to protect my heel, and it made my toe hurt. You can't say that connected within the body of Christ, it ain't none of your business what I'm doing in my life. Yes, it is. If you say you're a believer and you're connecting in with the body of Christ, because what you're doing... It hurts the whole body. And the whole body doesn't get mad at the foot and go, my goodness, how dare you have got stung by that wasp. <laughs> right? But the hand will turn around and care for the foot. The eye will help the hand see how to do it. The mind will guide all of them in what to do. Muscles in the back will help you bend over to reach it. I engaged in a conversation regarding this very thing this week. And as is common... The person dropped back to the default defense. The Bible says to not judge. In short, I'm going to tell you, that's a lie. 
wait a minute. I, I've read where the Bible says, judge not. Wait a minute. Can we just not try to take half of verses when we read stuff? I mean, that's like going over in one part where the Bible says, you just went and hanged yourself and then go get another verse where it says, go down and do likewise. <laughs> right? you just plucking stuff out. You can make stuff say some stuff. Well, the Bible says, judge not. The Bible says, judge not, lest you be judged. And then it goes on to say something else. It says, because with the same measure with which you use with someone else, that's what's going to be used with you. So if you use, and then we got to go, because then it goes on to talk about that, you know, you're trying to take the, the splinter out of somebody else's eye when you get the beam in your own eye. Look, then let's take the whole context of what that's saying. He's dealing with some hypocritical people. Look, you over here trying to nitpick somebody else when you got this massive sin in your own life and you're trying to be judgmental. Not that you are judging. We're going to talk about that here for just a second because this is important in this idea of what Paul was doing and the, the resistance that the church world has to this today. He was dealing with the fact that their attitude was wrong because they had major problems in their own life that they were willing to ignore because they were wanting to pick on somebody else and be a hypocrite. They weren't broken by that person's sin. They weren't disheartened and, and concerned and, and out of love wanting that person's life to change. No, they were worried about ignoring their own stuff in order to pick on something that was in that person's life. So what he really said was this. The standard that you use to judge, it could be used to judge you. So it'd be better for you to not judge if you're going to judge with a hypocritical standard. Now, we know this to be an accurate interpretation of Scripture, no matter what you're thinking. We know this to be an accurate interpretation of Scripture because of this. I'm going to show you the Word. I don't tell you my opinion. I'm going to show you what the Word says. John chapter 7, verse 24. So stop judging according to outward appearances. Rather, judge according to righteous judgment. You can't get that emotion right there on the podcast. That would be me throwing arms wide open going, how about that? Catch that scripture outside. How about that? <laughs> well, just saying. John chapter 7, verse 24. Stop judging according to outward appearances. Now, but let's take that. Now, because you know what we have a tendency to do? When we read scriptures like this, we have a tendency to go, well, well you were judging bad stuff. <laughs> right? You were judging bad stuff. You looked on the outward appearance and judged something bad. I'm going to tell you something else. There's people that look on the outward appearance and you judge somebody good and they as rotten to the core as an apple with a worm eat up all in the middle. Yeah. Stop judging according to outward appearances. See, because you're looking at somebody, they look so nice. <laughs> they look so sweet. They come into church and they, they, dress, they dress all right. They dress nice, maybe. And they, they come in and they're sweet to everybody. Oh, it's so special. And they just tell her, oh, we love you. I love you in Jesus. They get in the car. Y'all shut up. <laughs> all y'all kids, shut up. Where are we going to eat? Why you always want to go out to eat somewhere? You always want to spend money. Why ain't never? My Lord, you ain't cooked in five years. My, I mean. <laughs> why ain't you work some overtime this week? I've been here slaving over the stove. You ain't work no overtime. Why are you here at home? Get out the car and walk in church. Oh, hey, everybody. How y'all doing? Here, girl. Let me, come, come here, honey. Let me give you a kiss on the cheek so everybody think we're good. Mm -hmm. 
Stop judging according to outward appearances. Rather, judge according to righteous judgment. 1 Corinthians chapter 5. I'm not just going to give you one. 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 9 through 13. This is one that's tough on people. This is just what the Word of God says. Paul, writing to the church at Corinth, says, I wrote to you in a letter. So it was a different letter. I wrote to you in a letter not to associate with sexually immoral people. I did not mean the immoral people of this world or the greedy and swindlers or idolaters. Otherwise, you'd have to leave the world because they're all out there. But now I'm writing to you not to associate with anyone who claims to be a believer who is sexually immoral or greedy, an idolater or verbally abusive, a drunkard or a swindler. Do not even eat with such a person. For what business is it of mine to judge outsiders? Don't you judge those who are inside? But God judges outsiders. Put away the evil person from among yourselves. Look, I know this, this, this one's, I could preach this passage all by itself. This is a tough one. But here's what he says. He says, look, if people are going to claim they're believers, but they're still living in, in ongoing outright sin, they're sexually immoral, they're, they're swindling people, they're greedy, they're an idolater, so they worship something other than God. They're verbally abusive. They're a drunkard. He says, not only am I telling you that you're not supposed to be hanging, don't even eat with them. Why? Because what that tells the rest of the world is, hey, you can do all of those things in an ongoing lifestyle. You're good. Because you say you're a believer. Ongoing lifestyle. Mm. Paul knew that part of his responsibility to the church was to speak a warning or counsel into people's lives about obviously sinful behavior. But he also said that he had to teach people. And I'm going to tell you that these two things go hand in hand because warning without teaching is only half the job. There's a, there's a hateful attitude that will help you to warn people. There's a godly attitude that will cause you to warn people and then teach them. It'd be like you just telling your kids, you know, you need to stop doing this. And then that's all you say. You don't communicate anything else. It's not enough to say that. You have to follow that with instead you need to do this. In, not just stop this, but hey, we gotta, we got to change behavior. Not just tell somebody how you're going to stop behavior. Well, what do you do when you, I mean, you're going to tell an alcohol, you just need to stop drinking. Well, how are they supposed to deal with that? You, and you need to stop doing these things that, that draw, and instead you need to do this. You need, to, you need to stop doing this, but instead you need to go over and you need to put this thing into your life. Our world has grown weary of Christians who want to tell everybody what not to do, but who rarely follow it up with an explanation of how God wants us to live and the benefits of following God's plan. They're tired of it, and they should be, because we're not giving them the answer then, we're giving them the rules. We're not giving them the solution. We're just telling them what to not do. For instance, in the discussion I had earlier this week, I pointed out, it's not enough to show that sex outside of marriage is sin. It just is. Been there, 
done that before I got married. That's why, as <laughs> y'all know the story. I mean, that's, you know, ended up pregnant outside of marriage. Hey, but sin outside of marriage is sinful, or sex outside of marriage is sinful. But if that's, if it's not enough to just say that, rather we have to share God's design for the wonder of sex inside of marriage. Although the way that some married people act, I don't know that it's all that great for them. Some of y'all ain't enjoying the benefits of being married. But you know what? Now, now <laughs> let's take a moment. Now, there's a, lot of, there's a lot of teenagers and kids growing up in church that because the church won't talk about God's plan and design for how that sex belongs inside of marriage, they're going, hey, the only place I hear about it is outside of there. And everybody that I see in church, they don't look like they have no fun being married. <laughs> so I don't know that I'm all that interested in their idea of God's plan for marriage because they don't act. You, you, act, you don't want your kids to see you hugging. Or, you know, Caleb, he's always telling y'all stop. Y'all stop. Look, man, I'm going to sneak up behind that woman, kiss her behind the ear, you know. And, okay, all right, I need to go on. I don't want to make nobody jealous or nothing. I enjoy being married. I'm just telling you. You ought to. But we also need to be presenting the, the beautiful representation of marriage as the relationship between, between Christ and the church. It's not just, well, you can't have sex till you get married. It's why. Ephesians 5, verses 31 and 32. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. This mystery is profound, but I am talking about Christ in the church. I'm just going to tell you, attempting to enjoy the benefits of marriage of which God has defined sex to be one of them, would be like you wanting to go to heaven, but believing that you can do so without having to submit to Jesus or receive Him as your Lord and Savior. If you, if you claim that you are a follower of Christ and you're having sex outside of marriage, you are, you are in essence, you are cheating on Christ. Because He says the marriage relationship is the earthly representation of Christ to the church. And if we think, hey, it's not a good thing to be cheating on Christ as the church, then not going into the marriage relationship is like, I mean, look now, when, when some of y'all, y'all know when we were younger, they had a saying. And they said, why buy the cow when you can get the milk for free? So if, so if, if Jesus... And his relationship to the church is represented by marriage. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. This mystery is profound, but I'm talking about Christ and the church. Then our marriages should be a reflection. My goodness, this may be a good marriage, marriage uh, sermon, but our marriages should be a reflection of the relationship between Christ and the church. And how often do you think that you really are supposed to find Christ and the church fighting? How often do you find that you think that the church and Christ ought to be not talking to each other for three or four days? Paul recognized that this combination of warning and teaching was his role to the body. His aim, he said simply that it was to lead the people of God to maturity. 
in their spiritual walk. Paul ends with a powerful statement there in verse 29. He says, I labor for this, striving with his strength that works powerfully in me. This is a strong statement, but here's what I truly believe. The work is to be accomplished through the strength of Christ working in us, not according to our own strength. I wish that every minister, every pastor, every missionary, and every evangelist would comprehend that. And too often, the people of God, we attempt to live our lives, we attempt to minister to other people within our own power, within our own methods, within our own wisdom, and then we find ourselves burnt out. It's because we were never meant to do it in our own strength. We never were meant to do it in our own strength. It was always intended to be done through the strength of Christ. And it's easy to say that. But then how do we help each other move past that? How do we help each other then to recognize? The first thing is, you know, it's kind of like Alcoholics Anonymous. It's like saying, I got to admit I got a problem. And it's, Look, I can't do all of these things. I've got to find God's plan and I've got to let God's strength strengthen me. And when, God's, when, when God says, hey, it's time you need to rest, then you need to rest. When it's time that you know, I need to spend time with my family. You need to spend time with your family. Hey, I need to spend time sharpening myself. I rejoice in my sufferings for you. I'm completing in my flesh what's lacking in Christ's afflictions for his body. That is the church. I've become its servant according to God's administration that was given to me for you to make God's message fully known, the mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to his saints. God wanted to make known among the Gentiles the glorious wealth of his mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. We proclaim him, warning and teaching everyone with all wisdom so that we may present everyone mature in Christ. I labor for this, striving with his strength that works powerfully in me. Let's pray.